Let's, let's bow our hearts again in prayer. Father, we, um, whether we have that longing firmly fixed in our heart, or just a little, or we are wanting that longing because we realize the problem of its absence, Lord, we do come to your word, and we, we come with the hope and the expectation that in this time, in this space, God, that you will move and you will speak to our hearts. That you will build our faith. That, God, that you would draw us closer to you, that you would give us a deeper confidence in you. And so, Lord, we pray that as we read your word, as we study it this morning, that it would squarely be about you. It would squarely be about your Son and our understanding would come through your Holy Spirit. So Father, we, we give this time and we, we ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us faith to hear, eyes to see, and that you would give us the strength to be obedient. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know that there is any more aspect of the nightly news that is more sensationalized than the weather. Um, that any, any weather beyond sunny and 80 degrees is uh, potentially catastrophic. And, uh, and if you were watching the news last night, you probably saw some examples of that. Um, but it, it's sensationalized for a reason, because it can be really dangerous. And one of the dangers that we constantly hear meteorologists talk of is that of tornadoes at night. When it's dark, you can't see them. Uh, they, they're, they're more likely to come by surprise. Um, and a few, couple, three months ago, that was realized by a farm family in West Central Iowa whose home was struck in, in the midst of darkness by a tornado. And for those impacted, whether it was that family in particular or others who have been impacted by severe storm damage at night, the morning light has to be a confluence of emotions. As the light starts to come over the horizon, they're no doubt already awake, and the mess around them is gradually exposed and becomes more and more clear the extent of damage. And maybe there's a sense of calm that the storm is over. Surely there's a quietness in the air. There's the sound of the birds and the world around them coming back to life, awakening. Maybe in the newness of the morning light, there's some sort of sense of safety because now you can see what's coming if anything else is coming. But in the midst of that calm and in the midst of that feeling of safety, there is surely in that moment a deep sense of despair and loss as there's now a gaping hole where there used to be a roof. There's a car pinned to the ground by a tree. 
There are buildings no longer where they used to be. And that can become overwhelming. When we encounter Christ, the true Christ, we also encounter, as Pastor Austin told us last week, His light, His all-exposing light, His all-revealing light. And that light of Christ, which John tells us in Revelation, illuminates heaven so as there's no need for a sun. There's no need for a, a solar device in the sky, the light of God, the light of Christ illuminates everything. There's no shadow. As that all-revealing light shines into our darkness, it can bring on similar feelings. That a, a calmness of that, that storm of the sin I was walking in is, is over. I can... There's a a safety of I'm now in the light, I'm no longer in the darkness, and there is a despair as we see the effects and consequences of our sin. And I think a tornado gives a good picture of what what sin does. uh, But instead of using a tornado, I'm going to go back to Genesis. Because Satan, in the garden, he comes to Adam and Eve, and he tells them, hey, that fruit is actually good for eating, and you're not going to die of it. God just doesn't want you to know what he knows. And his lie comes in very pointed, very precise, and they sin, and they sin together. And the sin they do together is eating something God has told them not to eat. But the effects of that sin are first felt as their intimacy and their relationship is disturbed. They immediately hide themselves from each other and hide themselves from God. And so the lie comes in very precise and the sin goes out. Similar as a tornado, it comes in very precise path, but the destruction is spread out everywhere, not just in the one direction the tornado was moving. And so as the light of Christ comes, we can see around us the, I had this one sin, but the effect goes every direction. And then you compound that over your life and over the lives of those around you. And you see that that impact of sin. And it's no wonder why some people prefer the darkness as opposed to the light of Christ. And Pastor Austin last week, if you haven't heard the sermon, I I recommend it. If you're not going to listen to it, here's the summation. Either you're a cockroach that's afraid of the light, or you're a moth who likes the light. And so the good news is that you don't have to be a cockroach. You can become just a moth. (laughs) It was a great sermon, Austin. Thank you. (laughs) Made me feel so good about myself. Well, there can remain a fear of the light for ourselves. While, While some people love the light, And especially as we consider that the light of Christ does not allow for shadows. As we abide in the light of God, as John is calling us to in 1 John, the all-revealing light exposes not only the sin in our lives, but all the mess that goes with it. And it continues to show the sins as they occur. And so here's a question I I want us to think about. Knowing this that the all-revealing light of Christ reveals all our darkness, all its mess, 
and its consequence, why should the all-revealing light of Christ not result in panic and despair? If, if when the light of Christ dawns on my life, I'm going to see not only my wrongdoings, but their consequences, how they've affected those I love, how then do I not just freak out at the idea of that? And the answer is this, that the all-revealing of light, the all-revealing light of Christ, shows that along with the desolation of sin, also comes hope. Let's read... Let's read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 2 in 1 John. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Christ, or Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So the the all-revealing light of Christ shows along with the desolation of sin comes hope. John's goal here is clear and daunting. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. Oh, is that all you want, John? Oh, I'll, I'll get started on that right away. I'll just stop sinning. Sometimes, Phrases like this in the Bible really get on my nerves. The goal is that you might not sin. Now, it's, it's really important for us to point out, John is not saying that you need to be morally perfect this side of heaven. Because in order to do that, if, if, that, was, if that was the command... Stop sinning altogether, or God is really mad at you, and you'll lose everything. If that's the command, then that's, first of all, incredibly burdensome. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Secondly, it would create more sin in trying to fulfill it. Because we would be filled with worry. We would be filled, we, we would make sort, all sorts of false claims of achievement. We would go around conning one another into thinking we are without sin. And finally, it would require us to change the qualifications of sin to something that Scripture doesn't say. We would, we would lower the bar so much on what sin is and isn't in order that we could make it over the bar on our own. When sin happens, and it happens to us and by us, it is not a just cause to question our salvation. Oh no, I just sinned, I might not be saved. Instead, it is a just cause to show our salvation by what we do with the sin. John isn't saying, don't sin altogether. He's giving instructions on how to handle it when we do sin. The hope is that we won't sin. And that's a valid hope. Like, let's, let's really work hard to not sin. Let's really work hard to not lie, to not lust, to not be greedy, to not be prideful. Let's really work on, on getting rid of our selfish ambition and upholding the cause of Christ. 
But when you do sin, how you handle it will say a lot. Will you be the cockroach in the light of Christ who runs away from the light and scatters from it, hoping that you can ignore your sin and its consequences? Or will you be the moth that's drawn to Christ and says, I know I've done a lot, I know this is really uncomfortable, but Jesus is worth it. And so in the presence of sin, highlighted by this all-revealing light of Christ, we don't give in to despair, but we respond in hope. Because John's next words are, but if anyone does sin, and just before this he said, if you claim to be without sin, you call God a liar. You are going to sin. And when you do sin, know this. And, and he, he wastes no words in describing what, what happens when we sin. And instead of saying, go through this process of cleaning it out, he just points straight to Jesus. Know the person and work of Jesus. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. At the right hand of God, we have an advocate with the Father, and He prays for us. He's not passively sitting next to God saying, Oh, I don't know what their problem is. I just, boy, I never did that when I was on earth. <laughs> you know, He's not this passive aggressive advocate. He is actively for us. He is for you. When you sin, when I sin, Jesus is our advocate. He is not a disappointed king looking down on us, wishing we would just get our acts together. He is our advocate. He is praying for us. He is interceding for us. He is covering our sin with His own righteousness. And He is an advocate who sympathizes with our weakness because He has been tempted in every way as we have. And because of that, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. And he's a personal advocate. His name is Jesus. And it's, I think it's worth noting here that John does not use a pronoun, but he uses his name, Jesus Christ. He is a person in history. He is the messianic fulfillment of the Old Testament, the promised one, the pre-existent Savior. He is deity. We don't just, after sinning, say, it's okay, I know a guy. We know the Son of God who took on flesh, became a man, and lived without sin because He is not just Jesus Christ. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And there are two incredibly solid grounds on which we call out His righteousness. One is that He is eternally existent. Jesus, the Son of God, who is God. The Word by whom all things are created. He is holy, omniscient, worthy of praise. And when he was on earth, Hebrews 4 tells us that it, he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was the unblemished Lamb of God. And all of these, that he is our advocate, that he is for us, that he is the Messiah, that he is righteous, all of these qualify him for what John says next. He is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a word that 
is good for theology and Scrabble. Like this is one of those words where you, you lay down those tiles and people are like, I gotta get out the dictionary, and then they find it, and then they're wowed by your intellect. But it is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. Your sin had to be dealt with. If God were to just sweep things under the rug, that would be significantly less loving than Him dealing with it in a way that allows for you to stand before Him blameless. Because if it's swept under the rug, you're never blameless before Him. But instead, the sin is dealt with. And it's dealt with in such a way that His wrath towards you is turned to favor towards you. Because Jesus was your substitute who soaked up God's wrath like a sponge. He took all of God's wrath on Himself so that you could stand before God as His child in favor and that He would look at you and see the righteousness of His Son. Now some outside of Christianity criticize this doctrine as some sort of divine child abuse that God would kill someone who is innocent for someone or a lot of someones who are guilty. And the idea that this is child abuse requires a poor view of the Trinity and a reactionary view of God rather than a carefully calculated covenant-making and keeping God. David Jackman writes this, The cross is not the Father punishing an innocent third party, the Son, for our sins. It is God taking to Himself in the person of the Son all the punishment that His wrath justly demands, quenching its sword, satisfying its penalty, and thus atoning our sins. Propitiation is not God finding a scapegoat, but God taking on His own wrath in the form of His Son. He is the propitiation for our sins. So He is, for those of us who are saved, we can look and say, Jesus is the propitiation for my sins. He turned God's wrath for me into favor, but He's also the propitiation for the sins of the world. Now, if we assume that John is writing to a Jewish audience, maybe he was, maybe he isn't, What we see here is that he's not just the propitiation for the first covenant believers, the the biological children of Abraham, as well as a few who came in via faith, but he is the justification for believers for all Jews and all Gentiles. He He is the propitiation of the sins for the whole world. There is not a square inch of dirt on this earth where Jesus' propitiation cannot be found. It goes to everyone. It is available for every person regardless of whatever national flag they salute. Whatever tribe they're in, whatever language they speak, the propitiation of of Christ is available to them. Now this is not a guarantee that everybody is automatically saved by what Christ did. John is very clear in this letter that there are people who are not Christians. That there are people who are outside of Christ. 
He is also clear in this letter that the way we receive the benefits of this propitiation are by confessing our sin. There's not another way to it. But hopefully this inspires us to a couple of things. One, hopefully it inspires us to realize that the propitiation secured for us is not going to run out. That we don't need to look at those outside the faith and think, uh-oh, if they get saved, there might not be enough forgiveness for me. Or, to fall into the temptation that whatever sin you did last week, last month, last year, last decade, whatever sin it is that you've been carrying, that you've been racking yourself with guilt for, is somehow supersedes what Christ did. His propitiation is for the whole world. There's not going to come a moment in your life where you sin and Jesus goes, uh-oh, I didn't cover that one. I mean, I covered the sins of all of Russia, but that I didn't see that coming. You're not going to out-sin your Savior's love, your Savior's sacrifice, your Savior's work. If it was enough for you and the whole world, it was enough for whatever it is that you happen to do in the next year. You're not going to outsin him. So hopefully it inspires the security within you and hopefully it inspires within you a willingness to talk because there's a lot of people that the propitiation has been secured for them and they don't know it. They don't know that if they confess their sin that God will cleanse them of all unrighteousness. And either they don't know it because they haven't been told, or they don't know it because it's not even in their language yet. And how sad is it that there's people that Jesus died so that they could have a Savior and they don't know that He exists. He is a propitiation not only for ours, but for the whole world. And there is no propitiation for God's wrath outside of Christ. He is the only propitiation. Buddha won't lead them to a propitiation. Muhammad won't lead them to the propitiation of their sins. The tens of thousands of gods in Hinduism won't lead them there. The spirits that the tribes try to appease won't lead them there. Only Jesus will. When we sin, we don't stare at our sin as though it's too big. Instead, we look at our Savior and respond in hope. Our salvation is not secured in our ability to keep it together. It's secured in His finished work. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That all-revealing light of Christ doesn't just show your sin. It shows your Savior. And it shows your life change. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commands is a liar. And the truth is not in Him, but whoever keeps the Word of God in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. I want to preface what's, what we're going to be talking about by, 
by saying there's many times in the life of a believer, and I don't think this is abnormal, where we just ask, is this real? And I want you to realize, Satan is the father of lies. Jesus said that when Satan lies, he speaks his own language. And Satan would love for you to lose your hope, to lose your joy, by either thinking this isn't real, or that because you've sinned after coming to Christ, that you're no longer saved. Or maybe you never were. Those issues are facing this original audience. False teachers were coming in and they were teaching bad things about salvation, bad things about Christ. And the people were wondering, how can we know if we're saved? And all through his letter, John gives a variety of indicators that this is how saved people act. And he gives them in two tones. One is assurance and one is warning. I think today is, is a tone of assurance, but there are tones of warning. You can't say you love God and hate your enemy. If you hate your enemy, you don't love God. And it urges us to love our enemy, to love our brother who we would maybe say that we hate, but we can't do that and love God. But here he says that we keep his commandments. This is how we know. This is how we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments, we show His Lordship. That I'm no longer living for good old number one. That's the guy that says, oh, I know Jesus, and I, I know Jesus in such a cool way that I get to do whatever the heck I want. I get to go where I want. I get to party as hard as I want to party. I get to be as angry as I want to be. I don't have to forgive anyone. I know Jesus. We're cool. I'm living life as I want to. That lack of life change reveals a lack of lordship. And that's why keeping his commands is, is important. Is it, it is that outward symbol that, that the confession, Jesus is Lord, means something. Jesus is my Lord, and so I obey him. I don't serve money, I serve God. Jesus is my Lord, so I forgive as he has forgiven me. Jesus is my Lord, so I don't go around lusting after people willy-nilly. Jesus is my Lord, so I am not hateful. Jesus is my Lord, so I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself. Jesus is my Lord, so I seek to be a part of making disciples of all nations. We keep his commands. Obedience in response to what Jesus has done shows that we mean that confession. Keeping his commands does not earn our salvation. That's what the Pharisees tried. I'm going to do everything perfect to earn my salvation. We are saved by grace. Grace does not abolish the law. It internalizes the law. It's a scripture from the Old Testament that I will write my law on their hearts. Not on tablets of stone, but on their hearts. Obedience, therefore, is not driven out of a dreadful obligation, but worship and love. In other words, obedience does not initiate our salvation. Our salvation initiates our obedience. And it shows our genuine love for Christ. In John 14, 15, Jesus said in the upper room, If you love me, you will obey my commands. Keeping his commandments shows that we love Christ enough 
to not commit fraud. We love Christ enough to be honest. We love Christ enough to humble ourselves to serve others, to, to be the one who washes the feet. We love Christ enough to stay in a difficult marriage and serve our spouse, even if it's not, and especially if it's not reciprocated back. We love Christ enough, if we're not married, to remain pure before God and save ourselves for when the day may come that we would enter marriage. We love Christ enough to not give ourselves over to drunkenness or anger or selfish scheduling. And it says this, that in whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. That is a beautiful phrase. And sometimes we get so hung up on the beauty of that phrase that we forget, like, well, maybe I should figure out what that means. In you, the love of Christ, the love of God would be perfected. I'm going to put forward this morning that I think that's twofold. First, as we obey the Lord, we open the door for His love to accomplish His purposes in us. So His love is perfected in us through His love accomplishing His work in us. And secondly, His love is perfected as our love for God grows with our obedience. That the love of God that we have for Him grows to love Him more and more and to love what He loves. So the first marker is that we keep His commandment. The second marker, starting in the second half of verse 5, by this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked, that we walk as He walked. Abiding in Christ will always reveal itself. If you're abiding in Christ, it will always show through. That you are becoming more like Christ. That He who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it out to completion. So get to know Him. Be in His Word. Be in prayer. Not just speaking to God, but listening for what the Spirit may say to you through others. Through, his, through the, the moving of your heart. Through His Word. And another thing, and I think this is altogether missed a lot of times on our, on our self-independent culture is find other people to help you with this. Find someone that you know that you look at them and you say, They're walk they walk like Jesus. And then spend time with them for the expressed purpose of learning to walk like Jesus. Don't just hang out with them to watch a game or to go to a movie or to grab dinner, but find, ways, like find that person and do the ministry they're doing with them. Study God's Word with them. Spend time with them in their home so you can see how they love their family and have them spend time with you in your home so they can see how you love your family and they can speak into that. As you become Christ-like, His light will shine through you. And I think the picture of this, of we walk like Christ, is that we are a city on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden. Now you will mess up, and when you mess up, go back to verses 1 and 2 of this. 
And look at your advocate. Look at Jesus Christ the righteous who is the propitiation for your sins. And the change in your life as you keep his commandments, as you walk in obedience, and as you see yourself, oh, I, as people start affirming you that you have become more loving, that the grace of God is apparent, well, here's what, and, and you're confessing your sins, that life change is its own assurance. This sin bothers me more than it used to. Well, that's because the Holy Spirit of God is indwelling me and I'm his temple. That used to really bother me, and it doesn't anymore. Well, that's because I'm walking as Jesus walked. And that thing that didn't bother me at all, that I used to do all the time, I find detestable now. Because you're walking like Jesus. John is confidently prescribing assurance of salvation through self-evaluation. And it's, a, and it's a self-evaluation that doesn't point out your flaws, but points out the growth in your life, the change that you've had. But it is also a means, as we'll see later in 1 John, for weeding out false teachers, that they would weed out those who aren't walking as Jesus walked, who aren't keeping His commands. I want us to think again of that tornado that came through in the night a couple months ago. It destroyed trees, it ripped off a roof, it knocked down buildings, it left debris scattered everywhere. It knocked out windows. What was the first morning light? When the first morning light came, it was all they could see was loss. The theme was that things are not as they should be. But the light did not just give a glimpse of the destruction and leave. It kept shining. And as it kept shining, things got cleaned up. And even in the midst of the sense of hopelessness, the light continued to shine. And day after day, the light has shone on that farm. And, and it's just up the hill from Interstate 80. And two or three weeks after it happened, my family and I were driving to Omaha. And I, I knew what town it was by, so I started looking. And what I was looking for was the trees on the interstate ruined. And I saw trees had like metal wrapped around them. But you know what was going on with those trees? Leaves. There were leaves coming out of those trees. And I looked up on the hill and I saw that farmhouse that had no roof. But what it did have was a car parked outside and a stack of fresh lumber, some of which had already been put to use for rebuilding. As the light continues to shine on that house, you still see what was lost, but you also see what is being built. And you see what life is continuing and what life is starting. And as the light of Christ, the all-revealing light of Christ shines on you, there's going to be times where you're tempted to only look at what's been lost through your sin. And you're willing to only look at the destruction 
that you've caused or endured? But would you also look at the growth? Would you also look at the change? Would you also look at the newness? The all-revealing light of Christ does show our current sin and struggle as well as our past, but it also shows Christ, that He is Lord, that He has lovingly laid Himself down for you, and that He is actively praying to God on your behalf and through His Holy Spirit changing your life so that you can walk as He walked. Let's grow in Christ. Let's look at the hope of Christ that His light reveals. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that You are so loving that You would shine a light and expose our sin. That You would shine a light that shows us as spiritually dead. And that You would give us new life. That You would make us a new creation to walk as You walked and to keep Your commands. Lord, give us strength to do so. Give us eyes to see the work that You have done and continue to do in and around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand as we close this song.